Getting bigger by being better. The number one choice for Bristol. This is BCFM 93.2. The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Well, at least we're a full house here again today on the Bristol Agenda, the news and current affairs show on BCFM 93.2. You are here with me, Bianca Ravel, and my co-host Tim Hinson. We have another action-packed show for you today. We're talking local elections, the spy cops inquiry, police and protesters, and some local election chat as well. Uh, and uh, I would also like to say that you forgot about me, and once again, oh, the most underrepresented uh, member of the team, uh, social media guy. Uh, check us out on at Agenda Bristol uh, on Twitter, and that's all we're on. Uh, we'll be right back after this track. So, first story of the show today back in the 25th of january four people were arrested while they were staging demonstrations outside of the bristol magistrates court in solidarity with the four defendants who were accused of toppling the statue of uh, slave trader edward colston during last year's black lives matter protests in june uh, and those four people were paula richardson ros martin taus larson and roland dye and there was supposed to be a mass demonstration on that day to coincide with the hearing. Uh, they reorganised it online. The police said because of COVID protests were not allowed. But despite that, acting independently, these four had gone down to stage a socially distant protest um, in person. So these four are now to receive apologies and substantial damages from Avon and Somerset Police after the force admitted its declaration of a blanket ban on protest was unlawful. We'll talk more about this in a moment. First of all, we've got a world-exclusive clip uh, from Roland Dye himself, so one of the people who's now received an apology and compensation from Avon and Somerset Police. And we are also spoken to Larry Locke, who is a Bristolian, uh, and also a trainee solicitor at Bat Murphy, who represented some of the defendants here. So starting with Larry. Yes, Roland, well done. Big up yourself for taking that challenge and congratulations. Really, really impressive and hopefully it sends a precedent to the government to leave off our protesting rights and also to everyone else who's been affected by the police's bad behaviour in Bristol recently to take action against them it pays off. So I'm Roland Dye. I grew up in St Paul's and I still live here. Uh, ever since I was a kid, the slave trade made me uncomfortable. And of course, I've learned more from recent campaigns about the true horror. So when I heard that the Colston Four, the statue topplers, were in court, uh, I wanted to go and show my solidarity. And I didn't know that the police had pressurised the organisers to uh, cancel the event. Uh, when I arrived, I was on my own. The cops spoke to me. Uh, explained I shouldn't be there and I agreed to leave. I even asked them which way uh, they wanted me to leave the area and I'd gone about 20 yards before some other cops grabbed me and arrested me. Uh, they exposed me, uh, like the others, um, to more COVID risk. I was in the cells, deprived of my liberty for more than five hours. Um, and all this was completely unnecessary. All they had to do was ask our names and addresses. They could just send us the fixed penalty notice in the post. So the whole thing was basically a PR stunt by the by the police. 
It turns out that the COVID regulations were, were incorrectly drafted, ignored the Human Rights Act, always gave us the right to protest. It's been a big strain for all four of us, um, but well done to our legal teams. And justice has been done for us and I hope other people who have suffered injustice in similar ways. That was uh, Roland Dye there, who had been detained and is now receiving an apology and compensation from the police. Um, just to set the scene a bit a bit further, because I think it's important for understanding this and just adding some context. I was there on that initial hearing. Uh, there were very few people outside because of what the police, you know, because of the police warnings. Um, Paula, who was a gardener, had turned up. She wrote, um, support the Colston 4 outside in, in uh, water-soluble chalk. Uh, Ros Martin arrived later. She wrote, let justice prevail. And, you know, they were both arrested for criminal damage and a breach of COVID regulations, even though they had complied with instructions to leave the area. Uh, next, Hals Larson arrived. He, on a bicycle, he had a trailer with a sound system. The officer told him he couldn't stay outside, uh, but he could cycle past. And, you know, he also complied, but was then, um, you know, arrested on breach of COVID regulations. And then finally, Dyer, who we just heard from, who is a retired teacher, his placard said, slave trade, arms trade, Bristol, wake up. Um, and, you know, he'd also agreed to go, but was arrested as he tried to walk away. So, I mean, what do you think, Tim? Is this uh, an overreaction by the police? I mean, I guess the logic of what the police were doing, um, this was to prevent COVID transmission. And that's the sort of authority that they were acting under there. But that is interesting what, what Dai said, that then once in the in the police station, he was actually put into uh, more contact with with people than than if he hadn't. So actually, he, he ended up being exposed to a greater COVID risk. Don't you think that, that does you think that undermines the rationale for, for how the police acted? Well, it does seem that way. And I mean, of course, that's the decision that the court has come to as well. So yeah, I mean, justice has prevailed in this situation. I mean, the, there have been other instances of protesters in Bristol being arrested for writing using chalk. Of course, Paul Saville, um, who stood for mayor one time, mm. used to go by the moniker the criminal chalkist because <laughs> he was arrested on several occasions by the police and made a sort of tidy little income out of <laughs> then um, suing them for wrongful arrest because, you know, they the court had decided that uh, the chalking on the pavement didn't count as criminal damage. It didn't chalk up to uh, a serious offence. Yeah. <laughs> right, we'll leave that there. Uh, so, should we go on to the next topic, which is local elections? So, there are four types of election taking place on the 6th of May. Uh, so, normally you might have one or two ballot papers to fill in, but in this, this bumper extra special year due to coronavirus related postponements last May, it's a rollover. We've got the mayor of Bristol, we've got local councillors to Bristol City Council. Uh, we've got the Police and Crime Commissioner for Avon and Somerset. And, uh, of course, all this week on BCFM, we'll be, we've got interviews with all the candidates for Police and Crime Commissioner. So we had the Conservative candidate this morning. Uh, we'll have everyone else the rest of the week. And the final election you've got in this bonanza of democracy, the Mayor of West of England Combined Authority, Wecker. 
On the Bristol agenda, we're obviously going to be covering uh, the local elections from now up until the big day itself. And to kick off, last week me and Tin wandered around the the city centre, which counts as central ward, and we just asked people what kind of things uh, were, what kind of things did voters have in mind when they'll be going to the polls on, in May. So let, let's play a couple of those vox pops first. When it comes to voting, do you think you just vote for, you know, like you said, you're a Labour Party person, are you just going to stick with that guy or do you look up your local councillor, see what they're sort of standing for and pick according to that? For me, at least, um, you know, I, I, as I've said to you before, I, I vote on a party basis. Um, but to anyone else, if, if you didn't know who you wanted to vote for and you didn't feel that there was a party, um, that sort of aligned with your politics i i do think the fact of the individual character does have an impact so yeah you know i i do think but for me at least i think i'm a, a very party swayed person that's great thank you so much you decided which way you're going to vote in the upcoming election uh not yet no <laughs> okay. is it a close call between two people um, or i haven't actually looked that much into it yet i do need to um, I'm not sure really, I suppose I would always like to vote Green, but I worry about, you know, the Tories getting in instead, so I tend to vote Labour because... My name is Rishabh. And what are you doing in Bristol? Uh, I'm doing my Masters in International Law. Amazing. And so we have a local election coming up. Uh, if you could vote, do you know who you'd vote for? I think it, it it won't be the far right. I'm more of a central leftist, so I think it would be the the Labour Party. Is it? Yeah. So if if I if I could vote, I'd vote for the Labour Party. So for you, it's more to do with the party rather than the councillor in the area. Uh, for me, it's to do more with how the party is aligned on the spectrum of political leaning. Um, my name's Martha. I'm 34, and I live in Redland. And so you said you don't know who you're going to vote for in the upcoming elections, right? Yeah. I need some more time to research and obviously see what the polls are saying and therefore see chances of getting in. Um, my preference would be green. Obviously Bristol is a very green city. Um, but if it's Labour, then I'm happy to vote for Labour. And I think Marvin's done a good job, so happy to uh, see Labour continue. So there's elections coming up, uh, local elections coming up in May. Do you know which way you're going to vote? Uh, yeah, I'll vote for Labour. Yeah. And um, if you cast your mind back to four year, years ago, do you remember who you voted for last time? I voted for Labour then as well, yeah. Hi, I'm Katie Dixon and I'm 19. Okay. And are you voting in the upcoming local election? I'm planning on, but I'm not sure who yet, to be honest. I've read a little bit, but not too much. There we go. So uh, that was six people we spoke to. We, uh, I should just say we tried to uh, pick people of different ages, genders, doing different things. Uh, but of course, you know, it was a particular time of day in the evening uh, in the middle of town. So it's not a sort of scientific sample of anywhere uh, nonetheless, there's a few few themes for us to get our teeth into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in a long day of pounding the pounding the pavements, I think there was a lot of people who are just uncertain. You haven't really thought about it much, and I, I don't know. I wonder what that says about how engaged people are in in local elections. So they kind of like the um, 
you know, more boring version of the general election. So I wonder how much engagement they get. You know, there were some people talking about this theme of tactical voting. You know, maybe I would vote for Green, but is that a wasted vote, you know, because of wanting to block other parties out, for example. Other people saying uh, that it's more about the party than the person. But uh, what, what did you think of those uh, Vox Pops, Rohan? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're right about saying uh, tactical voting there, obviously being uh, an incumbent Labour administration at the mayoral and m- many of the um, council seats, that tends to lend itself towards tactical voting um, on the kind of left of centre side uh, um, because people, as you heard, kind of people who'd want to green or sometimes live there would, would rather go for the Labour they have than perhaps the Tory they risk. Um, but it also, you know, I think voting behaviours, voting psychology is very interesting because um, often people use a thing, and I'm going to use a, a slightly um, knobby term here, cognitive heuristics, which is when... People... I, don't, I don't know which word I should apologise more for there, mate. <laughs> no, you carry on, you carry on. Cognitive heuristics. <laughs> cognitive heuristics is basically brain shortcuts that we use all the time in all of our daily lives and the thing is is most people don't want to go and look at a party platform and to be honest none of us do so what do we use we use the heuristic of what did my parents vote for or what vibes do i get generally what did i vote for last time who do my friends vote for it's people you trust who have an opinion you you go for that because actually who wants to read a manifesto who wants to read into the individual politicians so i think those things are at play and i think the last thing you touched on there pre was that is it just a reflection of national politics? I think yes, because insofar as people know about politicians, it's the national politicians. It's, am I going to, do I like Keir Starmer? Do I like Boris Johnson? Maybe in this case, do I like Marvin Rees? And in that respect, it's quite a nice little taster for the mood nationally of the opinions and the trends that are going to be setting for the 2024 general election. Mm. Of course, it's interesting because it's, um, we get the national opinion polling, but it's, you, we don't necessarily really have opinion polling from a local level, not normally anyway. Exactly. It's opinion polling and it's also enthusiasm polling because people respond to the to the polls, whereas this is actually, okay, you've responded, but are, are you going to go and vote? Many more people mm. say they vote than vote in polls compared to in reality. So there's there's interesting little tidbits for nerdy social scientists like myself. <laughs> well, I am always interested in interesting little tidbit um so we're gonna play one more song and then we'll be back uh talking about undercover police um and we've got a final agenda uh demand a new normal you're listening to the bristol agenda on bcfm well there we go uh that is the immortal sound of uh bill withers there with lean on me right next uh the inquiry into undercover policing has been going on for the last couple of weeks as with many things that we cover on this show it has not got a right lot of media coverage even though it's very important to so to do our little bit to correct that uh, i sat down with phil chamberlain who is a journalist and university researcher who lives in bristol who wrote blacklisted and i started off by asking him about the special demonstration squad which is the subject of a lot of this inquiry. 
So the Special Demonstration Squad was set up as a result of uh, campaigns against the Vietnam War, which caught the police by surprise at the end of the 1960s by their scale uh, and frosty to some extent. And they thought that they would need a way of getting um, intelligence on some of these organisations to make them better prepared, was their view. Uh, And so the Special Demonstration Squad was designed to put undercover police officers um, into various organisations. And that was the idea was about prevention of violence. But what quickly happened was that the justification, the the litmus test for putting someone in seemed to broaden quite considerably. And so you had a whole range of uh, organisations which suddenly it became of interest to these undercover police officers. And so what started out as notionally, um, and it's uh, a reason for um, getting intelligence on possible uh, public disorder, seemed mm. to grow quite quickly into getting intelligence on any uh, political activity which might threaten, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, the norms and standards of the time. Um, uh, and that quickly came excuse seemed to put undercover police office into uh, any number of different organizations well that's right so i mean people may have heard the uh, the campaigns for justice for stephen lawrence uh, for instance was targeted by this group that's right. Um, I, I, that was um, obviously slightly later on. So we're looking at um, special demonstrations across setting up latter part of 1960, 68, 69, running through to uh, 20, 2010. Um, after exposure in the newspapers, it was wound down. Um, so I had a, you know, had a long. Um, uh, a long career uh, with hundreds of officers passing through uh, and their uh, infiltrations could have varied over time as well. And you had them um, uh, pretty much, uh, it seemed that any campaign which was um, uh, looking at um, uh, miscarriage of justice or uh, police uh, violence, um, uh, racist murders, had its uh, uh, was infiltrated, Stephen Lawrence campaign uh, being one of them. Uh, earlier on, though, um, the, the, the the inquiry has been hearing from a whole range of different organisations. So, for instance, um, a Women's Liberation Front. Uh, there was an undercover mm. officer called Sandra who went in uh, to check on uh, check on this group, which was campaigning for such um, destabilising things as uh, better nursery provision. Um, mm. You had uh, tenants groups in uh, uh, in London being infiltrated. So you had a had a whole swathe, many of them wholly innocuous. Um, mm. um, the vast majority wholly peaceful as well um, being infiltrated um, uh, but certainly if you were looking at running campaign because you were unhappy about how the police might have investigated a racist murder then you were pretty likely to have a undercover cop, a cop inserted into your into your organisation. Well that's right could you explain a little bit some of the tactics that were being used here so it wasn't simply cops turning up for a meeting and you know two hours later going back to the station and filing a report was it people were fully inserted into these organizations as you say that's right. Are they, um, you know, this was a, a long-term operation um, uh, running for uh, months, if not years. Um, uh, the the process of building up what they called the legend, the the um, the profile of the person beforehand, was done um, very carefully, and quite often uh, officers would uh, find a way for themselves to be introduced uh, by someone that they managed to befriend, um, so they had someone to sort of vouch for them, so they can make an entry into their groups. Mm. Um, their their 
the, the person they were imitating obviously weren't using their own names quite often um, they took the identities of dead children from that used that to construct um, uh, an identity which uh, gave them a passport and things like that that allowed them to pretend to be someone they were not um, they uh, often had skills um, and we're talking obviously a few years ago they would have um, probably access to uh, to a van they may have had access to obviously time and, uh, and money um, mm. and they were keen as well um, and organizations which were operating you know voluntary um, you know not you know not with a lot of money to hand these are valuable people they they come in and they end up ferrying people around um, they end up looking after uh, kind of key jobs uh, as well so it wasn't a passive uh, involvement very much an, an active involvement mm. and indeed in one case um, uh, one of them who was uh, masquerading as a uh, 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 has said he had skills as a locksmith, so he, he agreed to change the locks some of the organisation's doors. Well, of course, you can imagine where the, the keys of those locks ended up as well. Um, but the, quite often they would have access to. I mean, that was one of the way that the managed to identify is they would have access, you know, to vehicles to ferry people around, which helped them mm. uh, maintain, but also gets you into that sense. That is one of the key key questions being raised. Key concerns is not just passively observing not just helping but actually how many of them turns into Asian provocateurs how many of them actually leading suggesting acts of um of possible criminal activity which might not have taken place had they not suggested it and there is evidence of that taking place in some instances as well so this is far from course, yeah, a so passive observation yeah one example would be the the collapse of the uh, Ratcliffe power station trial uh, right. where potentially about 50 activists were on the hook for something and um that prosecution only stopped once the um the one of the undercover officers that had been assigned to them uh, their that, role was exposed that's right but we've also got instances of an officer, undercover officer um uh has been accused of suggesting about firebombing um premises uh, on behalf of animal rights uh, activists um that wasn't something that they'd been suggested something put to them um uh, of actual um cases of arson taking place uh which an undercover officer is uh, is alleged to have been involved in, in as well so um you know, illegal activity taking place mm. which otherwise wouldn't have happened. So, you know, far from sort of preventing uh, civil disturbance and crime and violence, um, actually instigating it as well. So mm. quite, quite, why would you pay, you know, someone to and spend that time to start doing the, you know, violence you're supposed to investigating is one of the questions that they hope the inquiry, uh, we know, will, will, will address. Mm. So one of the other very controversial aspects of this work has been the officer's habit or direction of uh, forming sexual relationships with women that they, uh, whose groups they're wanting to infiltrate, or even sometimes who were just friends with uh, people who were in groups that they wanted to infiltrate. Could you explain a little bit about that, please? Yeah, and I think this is really one of the absolutely uh, most shocking parts of uh, of this scandal um, uh, uh, is that, and and the fact that there isn't one or two cases, but but you know a number of these cases, uh, and indeed uh, a, a tradecraft manual which has been uh, been revealed as well. Um, it's it, it's quite clear that this was uh, an operating procedure. This isn't one or two bad apple 
police officers exceeded their responsibility. This is quite clearly a tactic. And the tactic is that they would try and form relations with um, uh, male officers, form relations with a female activist, tricking them into these relations, sexual relations, in some cases having children with them. Um, and it would give them a pass into the organization as well. Um, uh, uh, they would then um, have a relationship for a period of time, months, um, years in some cases, as I said, some cases have, having children with them. There would then be a sort of personal crisis and they would suddenly find the need to absent themselves and the uh, female activists would find themselves you know, left. I, I'm unsure why, what's, what's happened there. And only years later, finding out that actually um, that they had been in relationship with an undercover uh, police officer, um, you know, different name, no, no idea previously how they were being used, and that would obviously have a huge um, traumatic effect on their, uh, on on them, um, uh, and indeed on on the uh, on the children who uh, came as a result of it as well. You know, this is really um, the the state authorizing uh, rape. Um, by uh, by the, by police uh, undercover officers um, to, in the, in effect to try and pursue this political uh, policing. There's been um, admitted on a number of cases. We know there are other uh, cases still to come out as well. And indeed, as a, a, a an activist was only informed just last year um, uh, of a of a relationship she didn't even know was with an undercover police officer. So this is still coming out, and the mm. files on it are still sealed by the Metropolitan Police. Um, and and it really is, um, you know, one of the most uh, shocking parts uh, of, of this uh, of this whole scandal. So these these officers would would disappear after a certain period as well, wouldn't they? And, and there was no um, sort of official sort of notice or acknowledgements uh, you know they would come up with some uh, reason why they had to disappear often uh, i've heard things of people saying they were going off to australia or this sort of thing that's right and because um because uh, let's remember that a lot of the um a lot of the information and evidence about this scandal has been gathered by activists themselves mm. along with um some, some really good journalism some work by um uh, campaigners and, and lawyers as well but activists have, have dug out this information you know the, the thousand plus groups that have been spied upon um and they they put together um, patterns of behavior and over and mm. over again you see the same pattern repeating so it seems quite likely that rather than being an accident there is a uh, a process mm. at work and that is that um, quite often you would pick uh, from the vulnerabilities of the person you would uh, psychologically match about how you felt make a connection with them um, mm. you would um, you would then f the, the undercover officer would then have a you know uh, form a series of um you know, psychological, you know, traumas and, and torments, if you like. And then eventually, that's it, you know, I've had enough, you know, I'm, I'm off to, you know, wherever it might be, New Zealand, and, and there was be kind of contacted again at short notice. Um, uh, you know, it happened over and over again, and they have been uh, confronted and they have been identified. And I think that, um, uh, you know, it's quite clear that um, that this was, a, you know, a, a policy in terms of being able mm. to um, to infiltrate and, of course, leave uh, leaving the women and and their friends as well um, extremely vulnerable. But of course, it also has that destabilizing uh, destabilizing impact on the on the groups. You know, mm. who, who's a spy, who's not. You know, it, it, it's it it, it I, and the, I am you know, sure that that's a deliberate part is that it gets people to not trust each other um, and think, well, who can I work with? You know, who's who's here to undermine things mm. like that as well. Um, and so it brings that that strategy of um, of undermining, not just to those individuals, but to the mm. to the cause as well. 
you know the the vast you know their their the causes you know such as so destabilizing such as fighting apartheid or trying to investigate racist murders um you know the, the things that um you know the, the, the vast majority of people think were wholly good and proper things um that the police should be supporting rather than trying mm. to undermine so one thing that you covered there actually was to realize about this inquiry the is that the undercover policing inquiry isn't so much about uncovering new evidence as getting certain bits of evidence that activists or or maybe I shouldn't even use that term ordinary people have <laughs> uncovered um, legally acknowledged is that right yeah so the inquiry itself you know set up uh some five years ago now by Theresa may and there's only just starting to take evidence so started taking evidence uh kind of in public last year it's cost 36 million pounds so far don't expect to produce a report for another five years or so um that seems like the very definition of kicking things into the long grass um mm. it, it, the the participants have signaled their extreme dissatisfaction with the uh, organisation of it. I mean, the number of people, um, because of course some of this stretches back, people are quite old, you know, some of the police mm. officers giving evidence in their 70s and 80s, you know, a number of them have actually died uh, you know, yep. since this has started, because because it's taking so long uh, to go ahead, indeed in the the, um, the the choir and chairs had to change uh, because it's taking so long. Um, the secret way that it's being organised, the fact that um, it's been so difficult to get any sort of like um, screening from it, um, mm. it it's incredibly um, frustrating uh, process. It's not a public inquiry; it's a judge-led inquiry, um, which is a crucial distinction as well. So we're getting nuggets. You know, we're getting mm. a few bits and pieces from from this um, and it's useful but I must say that there is a um, distinct lack of hope of getting justice as a result of this may well get a little bit of information may well get um, uh, a little bit of better understanding but the chance of getting justice from the way it's organised seems wholly slim and I think is going to rely on activity taking place outside of that outside of that inquiry so all this week on BCFM, we have interviews with candidates for Avon and Somerset Police and Crime Commissioner. So the final question that I asked uh, Phil in the longer version of this interview, that, uh, by the way, we will link to on our Twitter, uh, was about what we should be demanding of the incoming commissioner, whoever it is. Um, so Phil's answer was that we need to be demanding that the information about how extensive the practice these practices of undercover policing are and how the decisions around it were made we we need to be demanding public access to that information so Priyanka you interviewed you've interviewed all the commissioner candidates for the cable um I know that the are certain parts of the community in Bristol that have been affected directly by undercover policing and they care a lot about it but it's maybe not something that uh, so far has made it onto the sort of wider public agenda. Did you get a sense that this issue was on the candidates' radar at all? So in these upcoming elections, there are going to be five candidates. That's Kerry Baker for Labour, Heather Shearer for Liberal Democrat, Mark Shelford for Conservative, Cleo Lake for the Greens, and John Smith as an Independent. So just to say that first. Um, all When I asked when I interviewed them uh, for The Cable, it was to do with hate crime. And while no one uh, mentioned the question of undercover policing and spy cops um, 
in in particular, I think what all of them were aware of is that there is a huge mistrust of the police uh, in many sectors of our communities, um, and they knew that that would be something that uh, they would have to tackle once they, you know, if they were to get into power. And I think especially now, since Sarah Everard and the recent protests, I think, you know, as I, as I say in the article, the next PC really has their work cut out because the rift between, you know, police and sections of the public is is really growing. And so... I think what we addressed specifically was to do with communities of colour and, you know, um, some people said, some of the uh, people said, for example, like Kerry Barker from Labour said that it needs to be about um, recruitment uh, and including more BAME community officers. Cleo Lake was saying about how it's really about showing uh, accountability and transparency. Um, I mean, in in terms of uh, having accountability, I mean, you know, the police and crime commissioner could potentially be one method of having democratic oversight. But of course, last time round, the first time that we had the PCC elections, the turnout was, I don't know, it was about 15% or maybe even lower. It was very low. Um, It should be a bit higher this time because it's combined with the other local authority elections. Um, Yeah, I think it feels like the race is a bit more prominent this time. Oh, absolutely. What with everything that, that has happened? I think you're right. The role of PCC has often been seen as something which is more symbolic or something a bit kind of arbitrary. But I think it does what the role is supposed to do is uh, scrutinise and hold the police force to account, uh, you know, as well as setting the priorities in the budget. So I think, yeah, it is actually a very uh, meaningful role and and it is a way for people to ensure that there is a certain level of police accountability, which I think, as that interview showed, there there really needs to be. And, and women, as well as communities of colour, is definitely a, a rift of mistrust that needs to be, that is going to need to be healed. Well, absolutely, because, I mean, the uh, it's a, a huge failure of accountability, really, when you look into some of the stories that are coming out of this um this inquiry that is horrific um you know we touched on it in the interview there uh, people undercover police fathering children and then abandoning them um you know people who were never even accused of any crime um or in some instances not even in a sort of activist group um having their lives really intruded on yeah. well Um, As I said, all this week we have interviews with police and crime commissioner candidates on BCFM. Uh, We've obviously been doing a bit of a a focus on policing this week in the Bristol agenda. And that continues with our final item, which is part two of Kieran Catra's Demand a New Normal episode, mini-series, let's call it, on police and border force abolition. So we will leave you with this. Uh, Until next week, you have been listening to the Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Good evening to you and welcome to our weekly Demand a New Normal session, brought to you by myself, Karen Karcher, via Plan C with BCFM. We broadcast interviews with fascinating groups and individuals who are actively engaged in demanding change, as they too refuse to go back to the way things were. Today we're talking about demands centred around our police service. Joining us in our discussion today is Sam Berkson, a poet, activist and teacher. I think, yeah, I think absolutely their purpose is to stop people seizing power. 
mm-hmm. and um, partly that you, you know, like the things you're talking about in terms of the aggressive and you know, policing a protest that goes against their own principles of justice, like preemptive arresting, right, yeah, is something that's been practiced on black communities for a while in this country. Like mm. The sus laws that were resurrected for the um, 70s and 80s arrested people on suspicion that they were going to commit a crime. Mm. Right? So that obviously goes against any principle of justice that you, you know, that the police are there to arrest somebody who has, they have reason to believe has committed a crime, not reason to believe they think might commit a crime in the future, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, these sort of things. But we, um, you know, you, you have people who are really exploited, uh, you know, living in poverty without opportunity, in whose interest it would be for, to take part in movements for the emancipation of their of their communities and of their class. Mm. But then instead they're drawn into criminality and drawn into a kind of what um, Foucault calls a milieu of delinquency. Right? <laughs> so they are just, in, they and they end up kind of um, not sort of rioting and rebelling against state power, but just sort of going against um, the whole notion of justice. Yeah. Right? So fuck the police is like, is an understandable starting point, right? But it's not enough, right? Yeah. Because we we have to get t- to move beyond that, like um, simply understanding, okay, these people are your oppressors, right? To then thinking about how we start to take responsibility for ourselves and you know, I, I, some people wouldn't like this phrase, but to police ourselves, right? yeah. you know, um, for communities to take charge of them, their own thing. And I think we've been diverted from, um, historically, the working class has been diverted from its popular illegalities into this delinquency, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of, um, you, you know, what used to happen where like collective tax refusal, yeah. uh, the dock, like we're talking about the original start of the, the Thames police, the mm. dockers taking stuff off the ships, distributing yeah. it amongst their family and their friends and their community. Right. Mm-hmm. So kind of collect like the Robin Hoods of this mm-hmm. world. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. We, move, we move instead to like glorifying these individual kind of gangster figures um, yeah. and feeling like you're being anti-establishment when in fact you're very much in the center of the justice system and helping the state function by continuing to, um, you know, to, to be, to be part of a criminality that's easily surveilled, easily controlled and used as a threat to the rest of society in order to maintain the justification for the police's existence. Now I'm not saying like to any individual, you know, young person who's, Mm. who's out there trying to make money in a way that makes sense to them. You know, or and to find meaning in a world where they don't feel like they have sort of, you know, family or purpose or opportunity and they've joined gangs or they've joined, they're trying to sell drugs. Like we can understand why they do it on an individual level. But mm. of course, on a broader social picture, it's like they're being kept from taking out their justifiable anger in ways that would benefit them and their community and kept away from a political criminal, you know, a political um violence and in a sort of criminal delinquent violence well that takes us on to our two questions that we have for this series um let's start with what are your current demands what do you want to happen right now to make our current situation less precarious so one thing i think 
would be a small but significant change mm-hmm. would be um, around stop and search. Okay. And if the police can um, stop and search people for allowing that to happen, they should do so with metal detectors. This is How do again. You mean? So if they. Young people are carrying weapons, and this is a danger to other young people and to people on the streets, right? Yeah. But, so that's the justification for stop and search. Mm-hmm. But most, most of the time, you know, I was saying before, because of the prohibition laws, young people get stopped, racially profiled, searched, they find drugs on them, gets in, get them into trouble. Not very long ago, this summer, just straight after George Floyd, half a mile from my house, a 21-year-old man was stopped by the police, uh, for drugs, they stopped him again the next day. This little bit of weed. He tried to run for them. They tasered him as he climbed a wall, and he's now paralysed, right, for the rest of his life. Mm. Now that's like that's a totally pointless interaction that should never have happened. It's an but, exaggerated use of force, isn't it? Yeah, and all for some weed, right? Mm. But if we, you know, but if okay, if we're going to accept the stop and search could happen, if the police can have a metal detector. And you right. take all your metal out of your pockets, mm-hmm. and they search you on the street, and there's yep. no metal, no metal. Then okay, then you, then they're free to go. Right. right? And I think that would be a positive change in developing okay. a slightly better relationship between the police and black and working class communities. So that would be like a very minor change, but I think one worth pushing for. Minor, but incredibly effective. Yeah. Incredibly effective. So moving on to the second question. What are your transformative demands? A demand that could cause a dramatic change and help us to build the future we want, our new normal. So on this, I think, you've been talking about a service. So the police's function on paper is to serve and mm-hmm. be public servants. Well, okay, let's actually call them that. Right. right. So we can abolish the police as they stand and we can have a public service. Now, mm-hmm. I think it's notable that other public servants are very much liked in this country. Yeah. So the fire brigade, you know, they're loved, right? They're pinups, right? <laughs> People like, you know, everyone has positive things to say about them. The, I do. Um, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> the, um, you, you know, the paramedics similarly mm-hmm. are very much like loved in this country. Now, this isn't. This does happen that paramedics will, uh, an ambulance will knock someone over and kill someone. Mm-hmm. Right? That does happen every year. Um, you know, the fire brigade were, be- were blamed for Grenfell. Um, or, yeah. you know, and other situations where they, they haven't succeeded in what they're doing. It doesn't mean that people say all paramedics are bastards or the fire brigade. That hasn't happened, mm. right? Yeah. Because people understand that their main purpose, you know, Howard Shipman was a doctor who murdered hundreds of people. Mm. But people don't think all doctors are bastards, right? Because primarily their purpose is still to heal the sick. If we had a public service, one thing that is different between mm. the fire brigade, the, the, the ambulance service and the police, is that they come when the, we call them, right? Yes. So when we, they don't, the fire brigade do not have to patrol looking for fires, mm-hmm. right? They don't bust down your door and do a search because they have reasons to believe you haven't got a, fire, a smoke alarm fitted in your house. Yeah. Right? Although you could definitely make an argument that it would make our streets safer or <laughs> our houses safer, right? If we all, if we had random raids from the... <laughs> on the fire brigade to find houses yeah. without smoke alarms right <laughs> you know paramedics don't come looking for wounded and ill people right they yeah. come when we call them and they actually yeah. come as quickly as the police will come right mm-hmm. it's like i love that that flavor flavor line in um you know in a public any song, song where he's like i'd rather call a cab because a cab will come quicker 
<laughs> and that that's is the experience. That's the experience of most line. people, right? They understand yeah. that, like, the police aren't there when you need them and they're there when you don't need them. So if we instead have a public service that comes, that does not follow the um, dictates of its hierarchy, but comes when we call them, I think that would be a really positive transformation. You know, the counter argument to that will be they aren't there when you need them because you don't need them because they're there. Their, present, their presence itself is preventing crime, which is why we have police on the streets. I'm not yeah. saying I agree with it. I'm saying that that's the counter-argument. Yeah, that's the counter and, and we've been talking about this, like this example I said mm. in Harlesden of how the police yeah. were all there on the streets, there yeah. in force, and we still had a shooting that ended up yeah. with a two-year-old being shot. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, this, if the police are on the main roads, then the crime will happen on the side streets. You know, yeah. like, they just can't be everywhere. And, yeah. you know, you can have CCTV, but then you've got balaclavas, right? So there's even with the automation, which does make them more effective at what mm -hmm. they're doing, for sure, like there's ways around these things. So instead, if we call them, like they can still like the fire brigade, like the, the ambulance service, mm. they can still prioritize their calls. So they still have a certain say in terms of what they think is, yeah. it, you know, more important. But mm -hmm. it might mean that they it, it would totally redefine the job of police and the type of um, type of characteristics are needed to be a good police person so if you have like an old woman who needs help with her garden or mm. you know because she's getting too old call the public servants right they can come and provide a bit of help for that you might have people like sometimes you do have disputes to get out of hand and you need someone to come and solve that dispute yeah so that could be or you do feel threatened because of violence mm -hmm. and you need someone to come um and then just as likely to be able to get there if you make an emergency call, then yeah. to the, just hopefully they happen to be walking past at that point, right? Yeah. So I think, you, you know, when once we start changing the role of that dramatically, then we have police officers who will, where the skills that are required are more like empathy, listening, conflict resolution, um, yeah. Sounds to me like you're talking about, a, um, well, not even like a police force at all, but a service that is um, diversified in the um, services that offers. So we're not talking about necessarily taking you straight to prison, but we're talking about um, being able to help in terms of mental health. We're, we're talking about being, being on call for um, intervention family intervention so a lot more sort of social education as opposed to banging you up yeah absolutely and so it's not about enforcing power no. which is you know where they think of themselves as the biggest gang in town and mm -hmm. know, and it's through the threat of violence that they enforce control but through help in communities where they need help and all these things that we, you know you could have a women-led team that deals with um, domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, you could have. We, we should definitely be having refuges for people who are suffering from mental illness. Yeah. You know, th there's nowhere to go. Like you, you mm. get sent to A and E, if which isn't yeah. necessarily the right place, right? But sometimes people just need to be able to check in for a night, mm. be watched over by professionals, given some tranquilizers, Rest. and given a break from their mind. You know. Yeah. Like right now, you you just telling me about what's just happened in Wales, where somebody's having a mental health attack and they end up with the police coming and they end up dead, right? And yeah. this happens so often, right? Mm. We even this country people don't even talk about it. The media's so controlled. We we even had um, a former Premier League footballer 
killed by the police in that circumstances and nobody's even heard of it you know mm. when um Dalian Atkinson was killed in Telford when his father called the police because his son who was experiencing kind of paranoid schizophrenic type symptoms and he needed some help and the police came saw a big black man immediately made their own assumptions tasered him and he ended up dead like and and yet this country doesn't even know about that, despite the fact that he, you know, he's a celebrity. Right? I think that those things sometimes astonish me. But you know, they, they're obviously not fit for purpose. Okay, I'm going to summarise what you're saying here. So as we yeah. well, we abolish the police, we replace them with a diversified service that can manage different um, needs within the community. So we're not talking about the single response being prison. We're talking about different services offering different. Um, solutions to different problems, whether it be beds for for people that need to to rest, whether it be refuges for for people that need to escape. Um, And all of this, like you say, is a holistic thing. It cannot be done um, independently. It has to be done with um, the decrim of other services such as sex work, um, drugs um, is another one that you spoke of. Yeah, homelessness um, as well. And I think and I think importantly about this new public service that I'm imagining is mm-hmm. that they respond to the calls of the community, not yes. to the dictates of their hierarchy. So they're not going out patrolling, they're not looking for crime, right? They're waiting for us to call them and then they respond where we need them. So your final demand for your final transformative demand is a service that it does not serve the state but serves the community i think i think this year is going to be an interesting test as our current um civil liberties are temporarily taken away from us as we stay at home it'll be nice to see them restored um and not etched away slowly yeah and Um, one thing we do you know as as well as we recognize that danger mm. um i think one thing that we do realize with the hope is like how much us having a bit more time to think and reimagine a world beyond the pandemic mm. um, it has allowed us to start having these kind of conversations. Yes. So, you know, this is, um, I'm talking about this from, you know, a realistic point of view. I'm aware of the dangers. And, and I think one thing we um, must be aware of when we have these conversations is the reason that they will not give up these things easily is it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how rational our arguments are, they serve a class dominance and they serve a power structure that wants to Mm -hmm. maintain itself. We have to recognize those are the forces that we're up against. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is important for us to exercise our imaginations and start thinking of other alternative ways of running things. 